Welcome to The Trail Less Traveled, an adventure series dedicated to taking you back to mankind's earliest form of entertainment, storytelling. Missoula, Montana is a mecca for outdoor enthusiasts, and each week we will bring you tales of outdoor adventures both near and far, as well as adventure information and inspiration and a few tunes to set the mood. You can read more about the show online at traillesstraveled.net. And now here's your host, Grand Canyon Whitewater Guide, yoga instructor, and master of the didgeridoo, Mandela. We are in the studio with John Turk. I've interviewed John multiple times on KBGA, twice here on the Trail Less Traveled, and he is the best storyteller I've ever met in person. So I'm really excited to have him back in the studio. I'm going to be speaking to John about his book that just came out. It's called Crocodiles and Ice, a scientist adventurer's journey into the consciousness revolution based on a deep reciprocal communication with the Earth. His book highlights his award-winning polar expedition, circumnavigating Ellesmere Island, as well as other lesser-known passages. Well, first of all, John, thank you so much for joining me here on The Trail Less Travel. Oh, it's great to be here on the show again with you, Mandela. Wonderful. I've interviewed you before almost a decade ago on KBGA. Wow. Yeah, (laughs) that was the first time we met, and we talked about some of your adventures there. That was live radio. And now I'm having you back on The Trail Less Traveled for the third time to talk about your new book, in the past, we've really dove into you know where you grew up and how outdoor adventure was part of your childhood. And your book starts out like that. It goes back. Yeah, it goes way back, way back to the beginning. Let's just go ahead and start talking about crocodiles yeah. on ice and go back to the beginning. I grew up in a very traditional, loving home. And I was going along the expectation of where people wanted me to go, where I was expected to go, right? And then I began to question. I mean, no big deal, right I was 20 years old. I discovered fast motorcycles, sex, drugs, and rock and roll. You know, this is not revolutionary stuff. And they, the great day in the sky, my parents, my teachers, the dean of the college and everything, decided that I was crazy and I had to go to a psychiatrist. You know, I thought psychiatrists were for people who, like, thought they were Napoleon or didn't have any friends or something. I didn't have any of those problems. I didn't think I had any problems at all. So one of the key paragraphs for me in the book is when I go into this room and there's this big oak desk, like the hierarchical desks of all command systems of the world, and... I sit down, and this guy's dressed up like a dandy, you know, and he says, son, I want you to trust me. No, I didn't trust him one tiny little bit. I figured that he was there to turn me away from being a bad boy, poor grades, to being a good boy, straight A's. And that was his only criteria. That was his only value judgment. I made up all this monkey business about being contrite, and I was just a little bit lost, you know. Hey, let me tell you something. There's nothing confusing about lying flat on the tank of a souped-up crotch rocket speeding down the roadway at 100 miles an hour, going to party with your friends. That is not confusion, you see. So we start from that, and we end up telling the story from the cockpit of a kayak, where I took this journey 
And, you know, it was like Joseph Campbell. There's the call. There's this realization deep inside me that I don't want to live in a cul-de-sac home in suburbia and do everything right and buy stuff and make a lot of money and spend a lot of money. And I knew I didn't want to be that. So that's the call. That's the Joseph Campbell call. And then there's the resistance to the call, the psychiatrist saying, well, you're crazy, you see, so you have to get sane up. In the book, I go through all of these battles within myself and end up in the cockpit of a kayak where I'm captain and crew. You know, I wouldn't have made it as the captain of an aircraft carrier with the mandate to blow small nations into smithereens or the captain of a cruise ship to provide opulence for those who have the price of admission. So a kayak fits me just fine. Just to refresh the listeners about what adventures you're talking about, you paddled a sea kayak through some of the roughest sea in the world from Japan along western Siberia and all the way up towards Alaska. During that time, you met a shaman and had an experience that made you go back. Right. And that was in my previous book, which we've talked about. That was The Raven's Gift. I spent five years off and on, not continuous, with this old woman, this shaman Mulanot. And this book starts off where the other book left off. You see, I'm going around the country and I'm doing book readings of The Raven's Gift. And I get people that raise their hand in the audience and say, you know, I'm a civil engineer or I'm a dentist or I'm whatever. And I don't believe in shamanism. So what's your book going to tell me? I don't want to read your book. And I go, thank you very much. But when I started writing this book, I said, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to start telling the same story, but take the shaman out of it. So I start with historical fact. The book is titled Crocodiles and Ice, so we start with the crocodiles. And I say to my readers, imagine going into the forest with a stone axe, just a rock, cutting down a huge tropical hardwood tree and making an ocean-going ship out of this thing and sailing across the ocean with no navigational tools to Hawaii and back. Nobody in the world today could do it, but that's historical fact. People did that. This isn't shamanism. You have to believe it. And you start with that as the power inside of all of us, locked into our DNA, and let's take that power and see where it takes us. The shamans in The Raven's Gift played a very important role in this journey that you took across the ice. How did you manage to leave the shaman out of the story? and give it the same ending. (laughs) Well, in the end, the shaman snuck back into the story Mm -hmm. because those five years in Siberia were so meaningful to me that I can't leave the shaman out of the story entirely. But what I try to do is start off with a physical journey that's in reality. Mm -hmm. Okay, when we did the Ellesmere trip, I was 65, and this journey involved going 1,500 miles, self-propelled, in 100 days. That's 15 miles a day. That's half a marathon a day, 
pulling heavy loads, all your food and gear and kayaks and paddles and everything. So half a marathon a day, every day for 100 days, when you're 65 over the some of the harshest terrain on Earth. So in the realm of Arctic adventuring, that was considered one of the last big journeys that hadn't been done. So I knew at the beginning when I started this thing that it was going to be really, really hard. And right at the outer limit of what I could do as a 65-year-old man. And I knew that I was going to have to rely on the shaman at some stage in the game. But I wanted to take my readers, start them off on a very physical journey, and then the shaman just pops up because you have no choice. Mm -hmm. You are listening to The Trail Less Traveled, The Trail 103.3's locally harvested outdoor adventure series. And we are in the studio speaking with John Turk. We're speaking to him about his new book, Crocodiles and Ice, which talks about many of his journeys. In particular, now I'd like to ask you, John, about how'd you get the title for the book, Crocodiles? Well, okay, I start the book, I'm lying in a cheap hotel room in Haniara, capital of the Solomon Islands in the tropical South Pacific. I'm naked, I'm slimy with sweat, I'm stuck to the sheets in dried blood. That's the opening image of the book. So I had done this solo kayak trip through the Solomons and had all these adventures, you know. The the idea was to be alone in a kayak, in not only a kayak, but a sit-on-top kayak, which is the most minimalist of all Mm -hmm. kayaks, out of sight of land, paddling in the broad Pacific. That was the, the idea of the journey. So I got beat up by the ocean. I underestimated the ocean a little bit. I thought, you know, tropical South Pacific is going to be easy. Well, it wasn't. And so one day when I was taking a rest day, I almost got eaten by a crocodile. And the crocodile was hunting me. And I outlined that story, which I'll skip over without the details. So then a week or so later, I meet this guy And he's paddling a dugout. He's going to visit his friends. And he says, do you want to paddle with me? I say, sure, you know, of course. So we paddle along, and then we're going up this river right around dusk. And, you know, I'm no dummy. I read the Lonely Planet Guide to the Solomon Islands, and it said crocodiles feed in river mouths at dusk. So I say, hey, you know, I mean, I'm really happy to be paddling with you, and we're going to go visit your friends, but aren't we in a dangerous situation? And he says, no, not at all. (laughs) He said, if we were in another river, we'd be in grave danger. But in this river, these crocodiles are not real crocodiles. They're the reincarnations of my ancestors. So I have a special relationship with these crocodiles. And as long as you're with me, you're safe. Right. (laughs) Okay, you know, so now we get back to this line between the real world and the dream world, reality and shamanism. And this is the way I build my argument. I start by saying, well, for now, (laughs) let's stick with what we know is fact, which is the fact that I just mentioned these people built wooden canoes with stone tools. And so let's start out 
leaving the grandfather crocodiles and the shamans aside. Mm-hmm. John, you're an amazing storyteller, and I would love to hear the story about the crocodile. <laughs> you, you said you, you were going to skip over it? You want to hear the story about the crocodile yeah, almost yeah. eating me? Yeah, yeah, please. Oh, okay, let, let's hear here that we story. go. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so I was getting beat up on this journey. So I'm traveling along the Solomon Islands, right? And that's a bunch of following coasts along an island and then crossings from island to island. Well, what I underestimated, I figured, you know, I've been in a lot of stormy seas. These crossings are going to be easy. But what the problem was, was that there was a big cross current. So let me explain something to you. You see, if you're paddling off the coast of Vancouver Island, let's say, and you get into a funny current, you just keep going east. You see, it's hard to miss North America. But if you're out in the Pacific and you get caught in a cross current and your island target is two kilometers in diameter and you get washed off by two kilometers, then you're dead because you're out in the Pacific. So I was getting beat up. I was underestimating the currents and having to fight for my life, literally, to make my landfalls. So I'm in this uninhabited island. I'm coming into it, and I've got a big crossing. And like the last five crossings, I've gotten beat up. So it's like, okay, I got the picture. I'm on target here. I've got to take this piece of ocean seriously, right? Mm -hmm. So I'm going to stop, and I'm going to rest for a day. And I'm going to really concentrate on the currents and the movement of the currents and when the currents are strongest and how the tide-current relationship is. And I'm going to get rested and I'm going to be really smart about this next crossing. And then once I made that decision, I realized that means I'm going to spend a, a day alone on an uninhabited tropical island. Like, this is really cool. Mm -hmm. I'm really looking forward to this. This is going to be just hunky-dory, right? So I'm paddling in, and now, you know, it's the tropics. It's hot. You're kind of woozy from the heat. And I'm paddling to shore, white coral sand, palm trees. I can climb up and get coconuts. You know, this is going to be really great. And, whoa, I catch this flash of motion out of the corner of my eye. Was that a flash of motion? Did I see that or did I make that up, you know? So I'm a little bit jumpy. It'd be nice if you had a partner and say, did you see that? But, you know, you're alone. So I paddle the shore a little bit edgy, like, what is this? And I walk along the shore and there's tracks of a really big crocodile. And I start looking at the tracks, and the crocodile has been resting, sleeping on the beach. And then it got up, and the tracks of a running crocodile are very different than a walking crocodile. And it runs, because now it's standing high, it runs into the water. So I go to the edge, and I see water just seeping into the tracks, like this crocodile was there just a few minutes ago. I go, okay, where's the crocodile? And now I'm putting everything together. I really did see something move. So I walk down the beach, 
and I see the tracks where the crocodile now had been swimming, and then it comes inland and runs up the beach into the jungle. I go, whoa, okay. So then I kind of tiptoe towards the jungle, and now the crocodile has run into the jungle, turned around, buried itself under the leaves, so I just see two eyes, and it's coming back at me really, really slowly. You know, I just made the assumption that this crocodile was hunting me and would eat me if it had the opportunity. So I jumped in my boat, decided I didn't want to camp there after all, (laughs) and I'm going to make my crossing. And I, of course, I picked exactly the wrong point of the tide for the crossing. I got beat up worse on that crossing than any other crossing, but I didn't get eaten by the crocodile. Wonderful story. We are in the studio with John Turk, and you are on The Trail Less Traveled, on The Trail 103.3. We are speaking to John about his new book, Crocodiles and Ice. The book is a scientist adventurer's journey into the consciousness revolution based on a deep reciprocal communication with the Earth. The book highlights many of his award-winning expeditions, including his polar expedition circumnavigating Ellesmere Island which we're going to talk about next. But, John, it's now time to play a song. Okay. And we chose two songs from your book. Right. And page 64 was where the quote... Right. I would love if you wanted to read... It's a Garcia Hunter song. There is a road, no simple highway, between the dawn and the dark of night. And if you go, no one may follow. That path is for your steps alone. In this section of the book, I'm talking about being at my graduation ceremony. And this guy is droning on and on. I said, you just need those four lines from the Grateful Dead. That's the only graduation speech that's worth anything. This podcast is brought to you by Karuna Clothing. Karuna clothing is handcrafted from natural fabrics, which soften as they age. Currently with design workshops in Missoula, Montana, and Mendocino County, California. All of their clothing is sewn and dyed in the United States. Karuna clothing is sewn with love and laughter, and designed simply with the use of the best fabrics. They create their own unique colors creating small batch product lines, which are simply beautiful. Karuna clothing is the first thing I toss into my suitcase when recording on location for the trail less traveled. You can find out more by visiting karunaclothing.com. That's K-A-R-U-N-A clothing.com. We're in the studio with John Turk. John has written 25 textbooks and four adventure travel books. I've interviewed John a couple of times on The Trail Less Traveled and before that on KBGA many years ago. I'm very excited to have him back in the studio. And we are in particular talking about his new book, Crocodiles and Ice, which is a scientist adventurer's journey into a consciousness revolution based on a deep reciprocal communication with the Earth. 
The book highlights many of his award-winning expeditions, but in particular now we're going to talk about his polar expedition, Circumnavigating Ellesmere Island. Uh, John was teamed up with Eric Boomer. They traveled 1,500 miles in a period of 100 days. And what a lot of people don't realize is that you're actually dragging your sea kayaks and your paddles and all your gear. You have to complete the journey before the ocean starts to freeze up again. So there's not enough time between breakup and freeze up to complete the journey. So you have to start early when the ice is firm. In the fall, the ice is too thin to walk on and too thick to paddle through, and you can't go. So we left in May when the ice is two meters, six feet thick, and is real solid. And we dragged the boats for over half, 850 miles, before we actually got into the water. And that wasn't a mistake. We knew that. Mm -hmm. This adventure, you talk about acceptance of vulnerability, ecstasy, and Barriers that one must go through, yeah, overcome. So each one is tied with a specific event. Mm -hmm. So the beginning of the trip is relatively easy. The ice is relatively smooth. We're relatively fresh. And everything is expected to go well. And if you look at the journals of the 19th century explorers, this west coast of Ellesmere was always easy traveling. So this was the warm-up. And then we crossed the zone from the high 70-degree north latitude across the 80-degree north latitude line. Now, that's just a, a line on a white man's map, but still, in your mind's eye, that's the journey from the high Arctic into the polar zone. And just around 80 degrees is where we're going to enter what we expect to be very rough ice. So everything is pulled up. This is the first crux of the trip. So we're pulling into camp, and I was tired, and we're, oh, we'll go a little further. We're going to camp, decide, right at 80 degrees for no particular reason, right? So I'm kind of looking at my GPS and everything, and we're going to get to 80 degrees, and we're going to stop. And all of a sudden, Boomer gets animated, and there's a wolf following me right behind. So I turn around, and I look at the wolf carefully, and, you know, the wolf sits down. We stare at each other, and I decide this wolf is not going to hurt me. So we're just going to let the wolf be a wolf and see what happens. Mm -hmm. So the wolf stays with us all that afternoon, that night. And at night, he's kind of sleeping like a pet dog. You can just see his outline outside the tent, his or her. And almost if you push the tent, you could touch the wolf. And he spent the night out there. So in the morning, we unzip the vestibule so we get a little ventilation so we can start our stove and cook up some breakfast. And the wolf is standing right there in front of the vestibule. Okay, so what's, what's the story here? <laughs> See, you can make up any story you want. But after those five years I spent in Siberia with Mulanot, the old shaman, I can't believe that this is just a coincidence, that this is just any old wolf. I have to believe that this wolf is there to communicate with us. 
and that there's a communication going to happen. And it's not some magical thing like the wolf is talking in some language, you know, some that you could record and decode. It's you and the wolf, eyeball to eyeball. So what's the wolf saying? Well, you know, is it the fairy godmother wolf that's uh, granting us safe passage into the polar zone? No. (laughs) That's so ridiculous. See, there is no fairy godmother wolf. So to me, what this wolf was saying loud and clear is, John Boomer, you're entering the polar zone. The ice is going to be really rough. You're already tired. You're going to get more tired. You're going to get beat up. You're going to get strung out. You're going to get frostbitten. You're going to be starving. You might die out here, you know. Welcome. And it came across as such a joyous affirmation of vulnerability. And I really do think that this is what wilderness teaches us all the time. We go out and we get caught in a summer hailstorm or we get out and whatever. When we go out in deep, deep wilderness, we get beat up. <laughs> and that's so different what civilized society over the last 12,000 years, agricultural industrial society is trying to teach us is to remove vulnerability, to reduce it, to eliminate it. If we're vulnerable, we go buy a bulldozer, you see. And if we still feel vulnerable, we buy a bigger bulldozer. And I think that's the biggest problem with civilization today is that we don't allow ourselves to be vulnerable, even though we are. The bulldozer just pushes dirt around. It doesn't remove our vulnerability. So I make a big point out of this in the book that this is what Deep Wild is telling us. The first thing you have to do is accept the world the way it is. It's not a new concept. We're talking to John Turk about his 1,500-mile expedition circumnavigating Ellesmere Island in 2011. They were going 15 miles a day. The entire expedition was done in 100 days. And I'd like to now talk to you about ecstasy and barriers that one must go through. Yeah. Well, let's talk about ecstasy. This is a delicate topic, so hear me out before you call me a crackpot. Okay, so we start going and it's warming up, and now the snow on top of the ice is melting, and we have these pools, and we're walking for days and days and days through pools of ice water, kind of calf deep to knee deep. And after a while, our feet start to break down. I'll just tell you a little trick if you're ever in this situation. Cut holes in your shoes. You see, you're not going to keep the water out. When you're submerged, you're going to be wet anyway. But when you get out onto some dry snow, you want the water to run out as fast as possible. So we had all these holes cut in our shoes and everything. Anyway, to make a long story short, I started getting really bad toes. My toes were getting really mangled up. So now... I don't want to make myself sound anything different than I am. Look, a sore toe hurts. And these were bloody, ugly, pussy, worn, seriously sore toes. They hurt. 
Now, can I just ask, John, is it from early stages of frostbite, or is it something similar to what we experience in the canyon with having wet feet all the time? Yeah, wet feet, but in ice water. Okay. Okay, imagine in the Grand Canyon you have wet feet all the time. Now imagine you're walking a lot, like 15 miles a day, and it's ice water. Your skin breaks down. Mm -hmm. So... The toes hurt, (laughs) the sore toe hurts. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, there's an amazing joy that so overpowers the sore toe. You're really happy to be there. And if you think about the word ecstasy, a lot of people associate it with the party drug you know, dance all night and make love till the wee hours of the morning. That's ecstasy. But if you look at the root of the word, it comes from the Latin root for terror. So ecstasy is a total involvement in where you are and what you're doing, even if there's terror involved. That brings you to a different state than is a normal state of behavior. And this, again, is nothing new. I mean, aesthetics, Jesus, Buddha, people for thousands of years, they've gone into the desert, they've gone through sun dances, they've subjected themselves to starvation, thirst, hunger, extreme exertion. And in that is ecstasy. And what's the point that I'm trying to make here? Again, it's a trite thing. It's a storyteller's journey into old wisdoms. In our society, we're just way, 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 way overamped at being comfortable. <laughs> it's like if we were able to ratchet our comfort level down by 10%, we save 10 trillion barrels of oil a day. You know, just put a sweater on or something when it's cold and don't turn the thermostat up. But you see, you can't tell people to turn the thermostat down as a way of sacrificing. You have to explain it has to be a joyous journey into feeling your body and into feeling winter and into feeling the rainstorm and into feeling the sore toe and... I know that there are people going to roll their eyes and go, I don't know about that. But trust me, if you go out in nature and you get caught in a hailstorm in the summer, you know, it's July, you're on Trapper Peak right here in the southern Bitterroot, and the storm comes in and it starts snowing and hailing and blowing. I mean, believe me, this happens, right? It's just a day hike. And in a way, you're miserable, but in another way, you're ecstatic. John, what about barriers that one must go through? That wolf was trying to tell you something, maybe that you were vulnerable and you're going into a barrier. Oh, yeah, and we hit a big-time barrier. (laughs) We made it kind of magically along the north coast of Ellesmere. There was a lot of concern that we were going to get stopped dead by really rough ice. But every time we ran into rough ice, we found some magical passage through it. It was just amazing. And we maintained our 15 miles a day through really rough ice. So we were feeling pretty good. Then we get to the northeast 
corner of Ellesmere. And this was a different story. This was something beyond anything I've ever experienced before. What you have here is you have Ellesmere Island and Greenland kind of tipped together. Look at a map. There's an hourglass. And the two, Ellesmere and Greenland, are 12 nautical miles apart at this hourglass, this squeezing point. And so you have the whole North Pole Ocean full of ice. And by this time, it was now in July, and the ice was broken up and starting to move. But it's not melted. It's just broken into chunks. Some of these chunks are a couple of miles in diameter, and some of them are as big as a golf ball. It's this mix of ice. And this ice starts coming through and gets compressed. It's being pulled by a current, big global forces, the spin of the Earth, the change in salinity and temperature between the Arctic and the temperate zone. I mean, it's being pulled by big forces, and it's getting squished and it's explosive. You get big chunks of ice, a mile big, smashing into the cliffs, compressing, breaking apart, blowing into the air, turning on end, splinters of ice flying around, dancing rainbows in the sun, and it's like, I'm not gonna go out there in my kayak because I'll be dead in five seconds. So this is a barrier. <laughs> And we use it as a metaphysical or metaphorical barrier, but it's a real barrier. <laughs> so we're in there, and, you know, we have a little satellite phone thing. I get a text thing that says, don't do anything stupid. <laughs> well, yeah, right. I Thank you very much. Appreciate that. It would be stupid to go out there and get crushed to death, but it would be stupid to wait here until we run out of food and winter comes on and we starve to death and freeze to death. So that doesn't help me. So how do you deal with this situation? And everybody who's been on a big mountain or been in really powerful natural forces telling them, absolutely, you have to stop right now. But what's the game of getting through it? You know, did you learn this in kindergarten, Mandela? Did you ever hear this before? It says, when the going gets tough, the tough get going. You heard that one before? Yeah, I've heard that. Okay. Well, that's really ridiculous, right? That's this bulldozer mentality. You know, when things get hard, I'm going to get a bulldozer. But there is no bulldozer that's going to get you through here, you see. And I have this friend who is an extreme endurance athlete, uh, rose across the Atlantic and races and stuff like that. And he texted me and he said, if the barrier is severe enough, you can't overcome it. And if you think about overcoming it and you have to get over it, you will be defeated by it. You have to, somewhere in your head, make the barrier disappear. That's no longer a barrier. You go through the barrier. <laughs> and, you know, he stared at that text on that little screen on the satellite phone. How is this going to manifest itself on the ground? 
but it did, and maybe we were just lucky. Who knows why we got through the barrier, but that feeling, that freedom, that I'm not going to get tough enough to get over this barrier. I'm just going to have to relax. When the going gets tough, the tough drink tea. Sit in your tent and drink tea and I've got nothing to do and nowhere to go today. I'm going to drink this cup of tea. (laughs) What did you end up doing, John? (laughs) Well, we're not dead. We had this day where we were going full tilt boogie from 9 in the morning to 3 at night, 18 hours, something like that. And we kept going out into the ice. The wind was starting to move the ice and going out and then getting scared and coming back and going out and coming back and going out. And then finally, the wind, a little tiny puff of wind, you just feel it. It was so beautiful, Mandela. It wasn't like a big gale. It was like a And it blew this 437 gazillion tons of ice just enough offshore to leave us a passage. And at nine at night, after battling it for 12 hours, we went for it, and we had to go through this section of cliffs where if the ice closed in, we were dead. There was no getting out of the water, and I looked at Boomer, and Boomer looked at me, and we were in total, neither of us remember what was said, but it was something simple like, okay to go for it? Yeah, some conversation of that nature. And then the whole ocean went flat, and there were ducks skimming across the water, and this Arctic twilight of reds and blues and purples, and we're just paddling our brains out in this absolutely magical environment. And I don't say that this was a karmic magic in our favor. I'm just saying that at that point, Whatever happened was going to be good. And whatever happened, we were going to make it. We knew it. We were going to get through. But just to feel the barrier just disappear and turn to this most idyllic ocean you could imagine was, you know, something you carry with you to your grave. And that was 12 nautical miles, that passage that you were making? Yeah, maybe 15, but it took us five hours Once everything cleared up, we sprinted for five hours, got to shore, found a little cove to rest. Now we've been going for whatever, 17 hours or something, and we were beat, but the ice was still relaxed. So we decided to eat something. We hadn't had dinner and brew up and sleep for an hour or two and then get up and go again and make it through the next passage, because we weren't sure that this good wind was going to hold. You're listening to The Trail Less Traveled, Outdoor Adventure with Mandela on the Trail 1033. This is the community's source for outdoor adventure information and inspiration, and we are in the studio with John Turk, speaking to him about his new book, Crocodiles and Ice. John, it's time to play another song, and I believe that song is... Octopus's Garden. Yes. And this is going back again to the beginning of the book when, you know, I'm a Ph.D. chemist graduate student and struggling with how I'm going to lead my life and suddenly realizing that we have to go to San Francisco 
and see the octopus in the octopus's garden in the aquarium. It's the trail as traveled with Mandela. You're listening to The Trail as Traveled, and we are in the studio with John Turk. We've been speaking to John about his new book, Crocodiles and Ice, which is a scientist adventurer's journey into the consciousness revolution based on a deep reciprocal communication with the Earth. John, I'd like to now speak to you about an invitation to bike across the Tibetan Plateau and a bike nomad that you met. Yeah. So we get back from Ellesmere, and I decide I'm retiring from expeditions and all that. And then I get an email from this friend of mine that I traveled with before, Malubin. He's Chinese. He's ethnic Wei nationality, not a Han Chinese. And it's a one-line email. He said, John, come to China with me, and we'll bike ride to the birthplace of the Dalai Lama. You know, I think about it for about 4.72 seconds, and I email him back. He says, I'm on my way. You know, when do we go? Look, Tibet, at the end of World War II, all the nations in the world are trying to rebuild and reindustrialize. And Tibet is saying, no, we're going to be different. We're going to be a nation based on non-consumerism. We're going to be an example of how you can build a community, a society, a political entity based on peace, compassion, acceptance of vulnerability, and all these things we're going to talk about. And this is going to be just different, and the world can see us for what we can do. When you think about it, it was such a beautiful concept. And what happened it was crushed physically with tanks, with guns. The Chinese would not allow it. And so this alternate view of the world as a political entity was brutally suppressed. And I realized that I had to go and feel that message and just feel it in the landscapes. I mean, you can read about it, but you have to feel it in the mountains. And Malu Bean was going to be our perfect traveling companion. Malu Bean's background was very much like mine. We both grew up in very traditional backgrounds, accepting the norms of our society. Except Malu Bean grew up in China, and I grew up in the United States. Malubin lived through the Great Famine, where 50 million people starved to death, where people ate other people. He lived through the Cultural Revolution, where his father was imprisoned and tortured. Malubin became one of the Red Guard. He was one of those children spreading the word and power of Mao Zedong. He became a propagandist for Mao Zedong. He invented slogans like death to America, down with imperialism, that kind of stuff. 
And then after a long life, he suddenly went, no, what society is telling me isn't right anymore. And eventually he became a bicycle nomad. And he asked me, and then my wife Nina joined us, to ride to the birthplace of the Dalai Lama. And this was a symbolic ride. You know, I don't want to put too much on it, you know, a great pilgrimage or anything like that. I mean, one thing or another, it was going to be a fun time riding the bikes across the Himalayan Plateau. Mm -hmm. But there was also undeniably this undercurrent of trying to pick up from the people and from the landscape this message that was crushed by tanks in Tibet and is crushed by corporations and politics in, in most of the rest of the world. But you finally get to this little hut. We actually got there. And I hate to say that a specific landscape has spiritual significance because then people make wars and try to conquer it. But you got a feeling of the message of the Dalai Lama, and which is compassion, and compassion for yourself and compassion for the earth. And Crocodiles and Ice is very much about deep ecology, which is compassion for the earth, compassion for all the animals and creatures there beyond economic significance. And that's really the final message of my book. Wonderful. Thank you, John. Thank you, Mandela. This has been great. I always enjoy being with you here. Awesome. We have been in the studio with John Turk speaking about his most recent book, Crocodiles and Ice. Uh, John has written 25 textbooks, and this is his fourth adventure book. John, I'd like to end the show with three outdoor adventure tips. Yeah, well, probably one, two, and three is, you know, the basic tenet of Buddhism is that pain is unavoidable. Suffering is your choice. And we get back to the sore toe. When you go out, you're going to be uncomfortable in the sense of the world, but suffering is your choice. You can be cold and suffer, or you can be cold and joyful. <laughs> That's kind of one, two, and three. Any other tip is going to be secondary, okay? Nice. John, I know that we could do a whole show on just your opinions on gear and sit on top kayaks versus kayaks with a nice cockpit and compartment for keeping your gear and uh, just advice. So I look forward to maybe having you back in the future and maybe some of the listeners can submit some of their questions that they have for you. That'd be great. It'd be fun to have a gear question. I'm a little iconoclastic about some of that stuff. You'll have to survive that. Well, you have a lot of experience, and so <laughs> we want to learn from your experiences. John, what song would you like to end this show with? We decided to end it with Janis Joplin, Oh Lord, Won't You Buy Me a Mercedes-Benz, because that is her playful look at consumerism. And really, the first step into deep ecology is to realize that buying all that junk is not bringing you happiness, and there are other ways to make the journey. Namaste, Missoula. Mandela here. 
You've been listening to The Trail Less Traveled, the Trail 1033's locally harvested adventure series, which airs every Sunday night at 6 and Tuesday night at 10. I would like to thank my guest for this week, John Turk. John earned a PhD in organic chemistry at the University of Colorado in 1971. The same year, in honor of Earth Day 1, he co-authored the first environmental science textbook in the United States. John is the author of 25 textbooks and four adventure books. For more information and to buy John's new book, Crocodiles and Ice, visit johnturk.com. Find The Trail Less Traveled on Facebook to follow the show as it is recorded on location around the world. Or visit trail1033.com to podcast previous shows. My name is Mandela, your host of The Trail Less Traveled, and my goal for the show is to take you, the listener, back to mankind's earliest form of entertainment, storytelling. Therefore, every week I will be interviewing an adventurer about what they do, how they do it, and how you can start adventuring in a similar fashion. The Trail Less Traveled is recorded in Missoula at the Missoula Broadcasting Company or on location around the world in order for me to find these adventurers and talk to them in their natural habitat. My outdoor adventure tip this evening involves a curious tip about how to survive a crocodile attack. Crocodiles have a flap of tissue behind their tongue that covers their throats when they submerge in water. This flap prevents water from flowing into their throats and prevents the crocodile from drowning when its mouth is open. If the animal has dragged you under the water, grabbing hold of this valve may be your only choice. Once you get hold of the valve, it will cause water to flow into the crocodile's throat, forcing it to release you. Well, that's it for this week's adventure, my friends in Missoula. (laughs) But until next week's adventure, please get outside and shred the gnar. Because as you know, the gnar simply doesn't shred itself. (laughs) 